Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. Welcome to Seasoned. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. The 2022 James Beard Awards were presented live in Chicago in June. The ceremony was hosted by a guest we actually had on our show recently, Kwame Anwachi. He's a past award winner. The James Beard Awards are considered the Oscars of the food world. Chefs can be recognized for their restaurants, writers and broadcasters for their contributions to media, and authors for their cookbooks. It's a major honor just to be nominated. Ahead this hour, we're sharing highlights from interviews we had with three rising stars who won James Beard Awards this year for their debut cookbooks. Later in the show, you'll hear our conversations with Chef Gregory Gourdet and the home cook known as the Korean vegan, Joanne Lee Molinaro. But first, a highlight from our conversation with Hawa Hassan. Hawa is a Somali-born home cook, former model, and entrepreneur. One of the things that makes her story remarkable is that she was just seven years old when she moved from a UN refugee camp in Kenya to live with a group of Somali refugees resettling in Seattle. It was 15 years before she saw her mother and siblings in person again. In Seattle, Hawa focused on becoming an American teenager. But as a young adult, she reconnected with her family and her heritage in deeply meaningful ways. We talk with Hawa about how making her Somali-inspired small-batch sauces inspired her cookbook, In Bibi's Kitchen, the recipes and stories of grandmothers from the eight African countries that touch the Indian Ocean. The Bibis, of course, are the grandmothers. The sauce business is actually what brings you to kind of where you are now, which is you have this cookbook. But what was the true impetus behind creating this cookbook? You know, my intentions are to talk about Africa 360. What does it look like if I were to talk about Africa from the five senses and just a full circle? And so going into my business, that was the business plan. It was how do I create a line of condiments, start in Somalia, expand to a condiment line from the continent of Africa? How do I then go into people's kitchens? You know, I can do that through writing and then I can do it on TV. The opportunity was there to talk about eight African countries and the thread happens to be grandmothers in the Indian Ocean. The Indian Ocean is chosen because it is the spice trade. So if you know about cinnamon, you shouldn't have any issues being able to make these foods. And the flavors themselves are amazing. You're talking a lot about even just cinnamon and spice trade. What are some of those flavors that are kind of right on point with this type of cuisine? Coriander, cumin, cinnamon, cloves, turmeric, you know, whether it's toasting the turmeric, whether it's making your own spice blend, showing you that, you know, butterberry can be used outside of Ethiopian food, but also enabling you and teaching you how to make your own spices, right? If I can, you know, remake your pantry, and if I can prepare your pantry, then you can cook from a global perspective something that you and your partner do, which makes complete sense for those of us who don't know anything about East Africa or Africa, the continent, is you take us there. So what is it that you want people who read this cookbook to understand about East Africa and what the babies or the grandmas bring to East Africa? Because that's essentially what enabled you to write this book. I mean, I want them to see themselves in the book. 
You know, um, the book was named BBs for a reason. It was because three years ago, I was like, I know that Americans can say this. And grandmothers mean a lot. We all have a grandmother if we're lucky, right? So everything in this book has been hand-selected, has been selected with intention. And so my hope is that everybody who picks up this book sees themselves in it and can relate to the stories, the human stories, and then can place themselves in a kitchen by making the food. So how I got to ask what it's like to interview grandmothers and talk about, especially with recipes with grandmothers, because I've done this in the past. And even from my own grandmother years ago, getting recipes from her, I mean, they're written on like some tomato wrapper or something. And it's, it's all scribbled on there. Half of it, you can't even tell what she wrote. Was it difficult interviewing these grandmothers and getting the recipes from them? Difficult? No. Challenging in that, like, you know, we had to video it. There were language barriers. There was just space between us. Sometimes I was here and then a grandmother would be in Madagascar and our photographer would be with her and there were electricity issues. So there were like logistical issues. But outside of that, these women were so excited to share their stories. You know, they were so excited to be invited to the table. And I, I think that is all across the American Um, landscape in terms of food we don't talk about our elders and we don't talk to our elders we just appear on tv like this is my grandmother's recipe like (laughs) just the thought of you even saying interviewing a madagascar grandmother on skype or zoom and i mean my toes are twitching right now just thinking about all the issues that could arise from that (laughs) yeah there's a lot of being flexible being you know involved in making this i could imagine It's interesting, Hawa, because as I hear you talking, I I rely heavily on my mom. I'm still lucky enough to have her. Um, And I think about her. I I don't have my grandmothers, but she'll often talk about her aunts or her sisters who are all in their 80s and 90s. And something that struck me, and they're all grandmas, right, or abuelas. Mm -hmm. And what strikes me is kind of comical. They will fight over who makes the better rice because (laughs) there is no faster way to get your Puerto Rican card snatched from you than to not make rice with pegao, which is like the burnt part, right? And right. I know every country has its own version of that. Was there any infighting with your BBs? Were they like, oh, I make this really well? And you, you interviewed no. another one and she was like, oh, no, that's not how you make it. Yeah, no. So only two of the BBs know one another. And one is in Yonkers and the other one is in Nairobi. You know, I think it never even occurred to them until the book was out, the scope of the book. Hawa and her co-author, Julia Tertian, interviewed each Bibi, and we asked Hawa what struck her about these special women. I think most of them, the way they talked about time and how they spent their time, what they're most proud of is often the same thing, which is their, their children or their grandchildren. Yeah. There was no air about any of them, you know, and there were ones that were like, the wife to an ambassador or, you know, the so-and-so of her tribe. And all the questions were the same. And every answer was often similar in that when they look back, what they're most proud of is the children that they've had and the communities that they've built. That's beautiful. I love that. I also love that you've profiled a BB in Yonkers, New York. That is hysterical to me. Are there any BBs in particular that stood out for you or that stuck with you? I mean, all of them have touched me in their own way, but Ma Gannett, who lives in Yonkers, has an incredible story. And, you know, I call her like the MVP of this book because even when I thought I couldn't go on, I would like send her a text and she'd be like, talk to my friend in London. She just is 
incredible in every sense of the word. And the day that I went to her house, it was a feast. She's always stuck out to me. And it's the country that I've grown up the closest to. You know, all my friends are Eritreans and Ethiopians. And so it was almost like a home going for me. Mm-hmm. How uh, oftentimes in a cookbook, you'll get some sort of prologue or some sort of note from the author saying, this is what you need to make successful recipes for this particular book. So what do we need? What are the essentials to cook African food? I think you have to have a pantry that's reflective of the foods you want to make. So your pantry has to go beyond peppers and salt. You're going to need cumin. You're going to need coriander. You're going to need turmeric. You're going to need cloves. You're going to need black lime. You'll need that. And so I think also once you start to build a pantry that's reflective of the world, you'll start to see that it expands even the way you think about the world. And what you're able to cook also expands, right? Because if you have rice in your pantry, and you have the spices, you're able to make a Persian dish, Mm -hmm. you're able to make a pilaf styled rice from anywhere in the world. And you know, we're lucky we live in a world now where we can get any of these things from Amazon and have them delivered in two days, you know, they anything. Absolutely. Yeah, and in some areas, you can go to the bodega and find all. (laughs) I just got turned on to a bodega in South Norwalk that I had no idea existed. My sister and I, we have cubbies there now. Those are like the creature comforts (laughs) that we thought we had left in New York City, but alas, we found them. I love a well-equipped bodega. Oh, and the cat. You can't be a bodega without a bodega cat. (laughs) How about what is, uh, (laughs) what are some comfort food from the cookbook? What qualifies as, as comfort food in East African cuisine? Even when I spoke to the grandmothers, like, you know, when are you your happiest or what what do you crave? It's much more about the people that are around the table as opposed to what's in the dish. And so when I think about comfort food, I think about like my mom's pasta sauce or I think about being with my mom. I think about like one of my sisters cooking and the screaming of my family in the background. But there it's not defined in the same way much more deeper a lot more uh, comfort for me is when my kids are all around the table and no one can get a word in mm. especially in just checking out the book and and doing some research here one of the things i think surprised me was how much pasta plays a role in somali cuisine i just never would have thought of that yeah and there's a bit of a history lesson at the beginning of each chapter because again spelling out the opportunity to our audience here i think empowers the audience and gives people the opportunity to be welcome to this kind of a book, right? So talking about how Somalia was colonized by the Italians, having a pasta recipe, you know, talking about our idea of a red gravy. And the only difference, again, being those spices that came through the Indian Ocean. Food is such a connecting point for so many different things. I also, in doing some research, bananas and coconuts are incorporated into these meals. How does that pairing make sense? Because I'm talking about savory stuff. I'm not talking about like, you know, I can make my kid a banana and peanut butter sandwich and it makes complete sense to him. But if I put a banana in his gane mechala, he would probably throw it in my face and be like, woman, what are you doing? Until he gives it a try. I mean, (laughs) it's really all about how do you incorporate sweet and savory? You know, I can't think of a time in my life where I didn't think a banana was good with like a pizza or uh, it's good with everything. <laughs> oh boy. 
bananas and pizza. I don't know as as Connecticut people. I don't know if we can say that. I don't know if that's okay or not. You know, pizza's a religion here. We'll have to talk to our friends in New Haven who, you know, that that pizza's religion. Oh my gosh. Sorry. <laughs> I, I believe pineapple goes on pizza, oh, no. so I'm probably not qualified. <laughs> 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 I know. I'm sorry, everyone. Yes, I love it. How uh, what are what are some of the first recipes folks should dive into when they get your book, your cookbook? The Sukimo, which is greens with tomatoes, collard greens with tomatoes from Kenya. It's literally six ingredients. It cooks really fast. It's a different version of what people are used to because you've got coriander, cumin, and turmeric in there. Another thing I would say, an easy place to start would be in the Somalia chapter, the sugo, which in Italian means sauce. The only difference is the hawaj spice that goes into that. Again, very reflective of the Indian Ocean and those warm flavors. We have a, a, a starter bread in here that has like three or four ingredients in it called kitcha from Eritrea. Cooks really quickly and easy to make. We've got some recipes actually featured on the website, ctpublic.org slash seasoned, that I want to dive into a little bit and talk a little bit about just the chef and me wants to talk. Because like I said, I think this is a cuisine that we don't spend enough time on and need to learn more about. And that's why I think this book is so important. Zanzibar pilau. It's basically like a rice pilaf, right? It's a rice pilaf, which borrows its name from, you know, the Persian version. It's just white rice, unsalted butter, a yellow onion, cardamom pots, a whole cinnamon stick, cloves, unsweetened coconut milk again, you know, all of that cooked together. And what really makes it special is the whole spices that go into the dish. And you toast the rice as well, kind of in the pan, right? Yep. You do that in the beginning. Yeah, I think that brings out more of those nutty flavors and, and just adds a depth to the rice, which is unbelievable. And just like the Somalian dish, you know, the pilaf is often started with the aromatics, which is kind of a bit different from the way that rice is made here. But it's what really makes it special and opens up all the flavors in, in both of the dishes. I live for rice. I'll go to a restaurant in a foreign land. I see a dish that has rice. That's the one I'm ordering. I out myself out as being from the Caribbean every single time. So I went to Puerto Rico not long ago and I, I was I was shocked by the similarities. in the food. Yeah. It's, it's unbelievable. Talk to us about the kicha fit fit. Yeah. So that's just a torn flatbread with spice butter and yogurt. Again, it starts with the kicha, which is our, it's just bread. What makes it special is the, the ghee butter that's often used in Ethiopia and Eritrea. They have their own called um, ibe, and it's just salt, barbare, and butter. There is a uh, vanilla sauce from Madagascar. Yeah. There's a vanilla sauce from Comoros, Comoros. often used is a topping, like a, a sweetener topping for desserts. And that what makes it special mm. is just the heavy cream in the, in the vanilla pots. And so, you know, we say like, make sure that your vanilla is from Madagascar if you're going to make something like this or Comoros. Duly noted. I actually just ran out of vanilla. It's so expensive. It's not cheap. That's the problem. <laughs> Especially now. Well, you know, one of the, it's interesting because I saw what you do here and how you serve this. You use it with lobster, which is great. But I actually, I, I'll, I will, when I'm poaching lobster in butter, I'll put vanilla pods in there. Ooh. Delicious. I love it. And you can't make a cookbook without some drinks, right? <laughs> there, there you go. Here we go. Buna, <laughs> an Eritrean coffee. It was part of a coffee ceremony? Eritreans and Ethiopians have a coffee ceremony for, you know, you drink coffee after you eat. Again, it's a part of like sitting in community. And so 
I can't remember the amount of times that Ma Ganette made me drink the little tiny coffee, but they make it in a thing called Jabana and then they just pour it for you. But it's the roasting of the beans, the grinding. It's a whole, that's what the ceremony is. I think it's kind of a, an interesting way we were coming full circle here with this interview, ending it with the drinks and talking about uh, the tea that you opened up with. And we're going to end with the tea as well. It looks like here, the Shah Kadeh. Uh, did I say that right? Yeah, it just means white tea because we put milk in it. So yeah. Shah Kadeh. And it's got uh, ginger and cardamom and clove and even black pepper in this tea. It, it sounds like with that black pepper, it would just be too much, but it's not, is it? At all. Um, I just made it the other day, actually. And it's I make it in a pot instead of a tea kettle. And just as I was boiling it, I was like, oh, my God, it feels like I'm sitting with my mom in the living room. Because there is something really special about the, the cloves and the cardamom and the black peppercorn and... I think that when people think about spices, they often think about the way that it's traditionally used. And so if I could offer any advice, it would be to just start over with how you're using your things, just to kind of the same way that I did with vanilla pod and lobster. I was like, oh, okay. That was Hawa Hassan. We spoke with her about her cookbook in Bibi's Kitchen. It just won a James Beard Award. Visit our website to see three recipes from the book, including that Zanzibar rice we talked about. Visit ctpublic.org slash recipes. Later in the hour, we'll spend some time with the home cook millions of fans know as the Korean vegan. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. Coming up after the break, Chef Gregory Gourdet. We were really inspired by the wellness journey he describes in his cookbook. I just really looked at my life and I said, do I want to keep doing this? Do I want to feel sick every time I you know, drink something or have a chest ache every time I smoke a cigarette? How much longer can I do this? This is Seasoned. We'll be right back. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash elevating health. Welcome back to Seasoned. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. We're shining a light on past guests who just won James Beard Awards for their debut cookbooks. You might have seen Portland-based chef Gregory Gourdet when he was a contestant on Top Chef. He's currently a guest judge. He's also an ultra-marathon runner and a CrossFit enthusiast. Gregory Gourdet is a graduate of the Culinary Institute of America, and he's the author of Everyone's Table, Global Recipes for Modern Health. His co-author is JJ Good. It's so good to see you, Chef Gregory Gourdet. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you. 
Uh, so I've been a fan since Top Chef. I was rooting for you then, just as a, a New Yorker to New Yorker. Thank you. But you are Haitian by way of Brooklyn and Queens. Mm -hmm. How did that pan out, those early years, back in the, in the gritty streets of New York? Yeah, I mean, I grew up born in Brooklyn, raised in Queens. Uh, right after I was born, my parents moved to Queens, where we lived for many, many, many years, many decades. Catholic school, very Haitian household upbringing, very big Haitian community with a lot of families of immigrants and immigrant families. You know, it's, it's oftentimes one group of family members will move to, you know, a country and then followed by other relatives. So, you know, aunts would visit. Both my aunts kind of had work in the States. My aunt, Micheline, she has a clothing store in, in Haiti. So she would shop in the garment district all throughout the city. My cousins, all, a lot of them moved to New York to go to school. So it was always a very, very busy, bustling household. You know, my parents worked quite a bit. They worked two jobs to provide for us. So oftentimes, you know, my grandmother or aunts would come and stay with us and take care of us while my parents were at work all day. It was a, a very, very loving household uh, filled with lots of family, uh, lots of relatives coming back and forth from Haiti and uh, lots of Haitian food, actually. But the thing is, like, I just didn't cook when I was younger. I think I was playing and reading and, and just hanging out and going to church. But I was always, always very, very well fed. I believe that as I, I started to read your uh, cookbook, which reads like a novel in many ways, you brought me back to my days after going to mass. I'm Catholic also. I'm mm -hmm. first generation. Mm -hmm. And mass seemed like forever. And I just couldn't wait to get home because <laughs> I knew there would be platano maduro. Yeah. <laughs> there would be huevitos. There would be, you know, there would be just this great platter of food as soon as I ran past those church doors. Was that similar to your experience? Oh, absolutely. So Catholic school, you know, church every Sunday. My parents were really religious, but they were great. They never really, you know, forced religion upon us. It was it was a very welcoming and like understanding household for sure. And I'm really grateful for that. But oh yeah, Sundays after church, you know, my mom would wake up early. She'd start cooking. We'd go to church. We'd hit the Haitian bakery on the way home, have, you know, these buttery, flaky Haitian patties, and they'd be filled with, you know, spicy beef or uh, salt cod or chicken, and maybe we had a couple of relatives over, but it was always a lavish feast. Haitian-style chicken, rice and beans, plantains in multiple ways for sure, and always one of the best parts of the week for the family, 100%. You know, when I started learning how to cook, I worked in lots of different styles of restaurants, and I worked in French restaurants, and the latter part of my career took me to Spanish restaurants and, and Pan-Asian concepts. So I really had to go back and learn how to make Haitian food because I just didn't grow up cooking it. I grew up eating it quite a bit. So it was always a great victory when I could make something and it triggered a really intense memory. When I finally got the rice and beans down the right perfect way and, and it tasted just like I remembered my aunt's tasting or the chicken cooking and the Creole sauce and it smelled just like what I remember my grandmother's house smelling like. Those are like those aha, this is great moments that I've had in my later career. You know, it's funny, you look at, I mean, you and I both were graduates of CIA, and, you know, it's such a classic French cooking that we're taught. Recently, we just started doing a lot of talking about here on this show and, and with other chefs. They don't really teach us a lot there about, you know, like you mentioned, Haitian cuisine or Norwegian cuisine or African cuisine. It's just, it's pretty straightforward, and I, I think that's kind of a downfall. We really need to try to 
learn more about those cuisines. I think they can get lost in the mix if we're not careful. Yeah, I mean, I definitely think there's a lot of conversations about that, how, you know, there isn't just one food. And oftentimes, even on Top Chef, you know, recently for we had a Pan-African challenge and a lot of the conversation was about how, you know, oftentimes the story is about French food or Italian food, uh, maybe even Japanese food. We think about those type of restaurants as fine dining, but we don't think about, you know, other cultures. And there's definitely a huge movement in our country, I think, as more people become entrepreneurs and business owners and more smaller uh, restaurants kind of gain, gain some fame and, and garner more guests and put themselves on, on the map. You know, we can talk about Haitian restaurants and West African cuisine and, and Guyanese cuisine and Jamaican cuisine and, and all these kind of unsung kind of heroes of, you know, culinary because just because certain cuisines are more popular, that doesn't mean that there aren't amazing cuisines out there that we need to know you know, as, uh, you know, a beautiful country made up of many, many immigrants, many, many different types of cultures. Gregory, I wonder if you could bring us back, because before you got to CIA, you actually started at NYU. I did. I did. And that, and that didn't, and that didn't quite, uh, that didn't quite pan out. Were you studying medicine? I was. Pre-med. I know. At one point, I thought I was going to be a lawyer and didn't pan out. <laughs> yeah. You know, again, it's a very classic child of immigrant stories. You need to be a doctor or a lawyer. Yeah, I mean, I think I've been extremely blessed to be a part of this industry. And, you know, I know my career can just develop into so many things. And I, I think for young people to understand that there's so many avenues you can take to be a chef. And it's so multifaceted. And, you know, yes, I've been on TV. That's one piece of what I do. And, you know, I love working in restaurants, building teams. And that's another piece of what I do. But, you know, at the end of the day, you know, we are learning how to properly cook something. There's tons of science in there. And when working with sustainable seafood, you know, we're talking about global impacts of what we do and how we source properly, you know, working with purveyors, especially in a time like a pandemic where the cycle has been broken. So it's very, very um, complex and it's never ending how much you can learn and, you know, what other avenues we can go into with the culinary arts. I'm here for it. Um, when you finished CIA, you trained under none other than Jean-Georges von Gerichten. Yes. Uh, how did you land that? Because that is no easy feat. Sure. Not to so, say that you weren't talented, because I'm sure you were. Yeah. But I know that I do know enough about your industry to know that a lot of it is, besides the blood, sweat, and tears, finding the person that's like, hey, come. So what really happened? <laughs> what had really had happened was my mother's uh, one of my mother's best friends. Her son-in-law was the chef de cuisine at Jean Georges. So that was my in, and this was in 1998, 98 to 99, and and yeah, uh, it was a really really tremendous experience. I had a fantastic time. I learned so much. I felt a lot of the things that I was taught in school, I was retaught at Jean Georges. You know, there's a world of flavors out there. And that's something Jean-Georges taught me as well. To be able to cook in New York City during that period, you know, was definitely a career-defining kind of life-defining uh, experience for sure. It was definitely a heyday and it was definitely very, very fun. But those early years cooking in New York were also fraught. As my career accelerated, I, I, had, I developed a very, very nasty drug and alcohol habit. And I started experimenting with drugs, you know, very, very early a lot of, you know, teenage people, adolescents kind of go through those experiences. You know, you're young, you're, you're growing, your body's changing. You're just kind of curious for life and experiencing new things. That really led into a very 
hungry uh, part of me uh, kind of going through the same thing in college in Montana. You know, uh, recreational drug use uh, became quite a problem. And I remember specifically the first time I was late for work from drinking too much the night before. I really timestamp my, my battle with addiction as, you know, starting on that day. Over the course of the next seven years, you know, it just really got darker. And, and there are definitely some good times, and, but it definitely got darker. By year five, I was addicted to smoking cocaine and definitely addicted to drinking. I had been going through jobs at that point, working at multiple restaurants in New York City, you know, places like I don't even put on my resume, you know, it was, it was a dark time. You know, I, I was with a good friend of mine and he was kind of going through the same thing. And we were just kind of supporting each other through this kind of dark phase of addiction and you just like making poor choices. But at the end of it, I checked into rehab in Union City, uh, excuse me, Union Square. Good for you. And it was an outpatient rehab, but it actually took two years, you know, after my first check into rehab to finally get sober. And I did that through Alcoholics Anonymous. And when I finally got sober, you know, after so many years of just ups and downs and, and moving across the country and moving from state to state and going through jobs, I just looked around and I took stock of my life. I just really looked at my life and I said, do I want to keep doing this? You know, do I want to be unhealthy? Do I want to feel sick and tired? Do I want to feel sick every time I you know, drink something or have a chest ache every time I smoke a cigarette? How much longer can I do this? And it was through meeting people who were in recovery, actually, that really inspired me to get sober myself. Pretty much after that, I walked into my first meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous, and that was 12 years ago, and I've never looked back. So, Congratulations. Wow, that's amazing, man. What a really fantastic <laughs> story. Amazing. Thank you. Now, let's get into the cookbook, Everyone's Table. I really wanted to write a book that even if you'd never seen me on TV, if, you, if you've never been to my restaurants, you could pick up the book and it would be helpful. And it was less about me and like what I cook and fancy chefy stuff. And I really wanted it to be really useful for me. Eating is such a big part of my health story. And, you know, when I did get sober, I was crazy about fitness. I joined the CrossFit gym. I became an ultra runner. I just kept doing marathons, like multiple marathons a year. And I started experimenting with the paleo diet. So I actually went off gluten and dairy. Um, and those are the two biggest sticking points uh, or, or, you know, the, the two biggest parts of me. You know, I, I do consider myself somewhat paleo. I, I love the paleo diet, but the book itself is gluten-free. It's dairy-free. It's refined sugar-free and soy uh, legume and grain-free. But at the same time, it's, it's not a book for only people on those diets. I like to call them dietary distinctions. Even if you just want to get a healthy dinner on the table, or if you're happen to be entertaining someone who's vegan or gluten-free, you can use the book. Or even if you just want to do a huge overhaul and just incorporate more global flavors into your dishes at home, the book is for you. I mean, the book's many parts are A, it's based off the top 100 superfoods. B, it's 100% allergen-friendly. C, incorporates a global pantry of ingredients. So how to use all the different types of chilies, how to use fish sauce, how to use coconut milk, how to make creamy sauces with cashews, how to ferment. And then the last piece is really, uh, it's designed for home cooks. It's a really step-by-step -step process because I want everyone to be successful in recreating the recipes. 
Chef, I think one of the things that I love the most about this is that it's important to know the origins of ingredients and dishes. And that's a big thing with you, too. You think it's such an important thing to understand where these things come from, why we're using them, and the history behind them. Yes. For me, understanding the culture behind the cuisine is extremely important. And this is another element, another layer of cooking that is so fascinating to me. Uh, you know, and having been someone who's worked in all these different styles of restaurants and has been working with all these different types of ingredients and I've learned all about these different types of cuisines. And, you know, I've been to Asia numerous times and I've been to Europe numerous times and I'm going back to Haiti now as much as possible. Connecting with how these ingredients kind of made their way across the world, you know, the origins of how they came to be, these iconic dishes that we think of. I think it's absolutely fascinating. And you know, one of my favorite examples is, you know, oftentimes when you talk about jerk and there's a jerk inspired recipe in the book, you know, why is there often sometimes ginger and soy sauce and jerk? And that's because of the Chinese immigrants, you know, that moved to Jamaica. Mm -hmm. And this type of story, you know, is very common. And we see it in so many of the foods and some of the iconic dishes, you know, it's kind of like a couple of ingredients. You're like, well, how did this make it this way to this specific dish, this specific country? So the book goes into that. Um, it goes into a lot of the story behind a lot of the Haitian cuisines and just that kind of game of telephone, that game of transportation. And, you know, the reality of it is a lot of it has a bit of a dark past, you know, slavery, indentured servitude, colonialism. All these things kind of created so many of the flavors that we consider iconic to a specific place. So I think it's important that we know the history of these foods, the good and the bad. And getting that connection to the people, you know, I think that's important too. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, that's, that's a great piece that it connects you with the story behind the people as well. Can you share some recipes from the Haitian heritage part of the book? Oh, sure. Pineapple upside down cake is a very, very iconic Haitian dessert. It's spiced with cinnamon and star anise and lime zest and almond extract and vanilla extract. And it's like a very beautiful fragrant cake. And, and the version in the book, you know, I introduce, uh, you know, a gluten-free flour blend um, that's made from almond flour, coconut flour, and tapioca starch. I personally think the cake crumb is absolutely wonderful. And I've taken out the butter and the oil and I've replaced it with coconut oil. And I replaced the sugars with, you know, maple syrup and coconut sugar. So kind of like switching out a few ingredients just to make these dishes a little bit lighter, a little bit healthier. But at the same time, there's also recipes that are just one turn straightforward. You know, there's fried plantains. Are you team tostones or team maduro? <laughs> I'm uh, honestly like I love both, but like I have a huge sweet tooth. So I'm team maduro. <laughs> Team Tostones. For those of you wondering, it's the salty fried yeah. green plantains yeah, or yeah. the sweeter, uh, smoother Maduros, which are a But there, there's recipes for both in the book. There's you know what, Gregory? It was going so well. <laughs> uh. so, there's a whole plantain chart in the book, so my commitment to the plantain is very honest and real. Good. <laughs> You know, it did take me three years to write the book, so I'm extremely proud of it. And uh, I just hope the book brings people joy. And I hope my story inspires people to kind of destigmatize addiction and kind of offer support and resources and always know that there's a way out. You're a legend, Chef. We appreciate you. <laughs> Thank you so much. I've had so much fun today. That was Chef Gregory Gourdet. And his book did bring people joy. And it brought Gregory a James Beard Award in June. The book is Everyone's Table, 
and we've got the recipe for that Haitian pineapple upside down cake on our site, ctpublic.org recipes. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. We're going to take a short break, but when we come back, we talk with one last award-winning guest, Joanne Lee Molinaro. She describes how she learned to appreciate the food of her culinary heritage. I had actually been flattening my own cultural cuisine by thinking that it was merely short ribs, pork belly, and fish sauce. You're listening to Seasoned on Connecticut Public Radio. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Seasoned. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. We're listening back to highlights from conversations we had with three past guests who just won James Beard Awards for their cookbooks. In our much longer conversation with content creator Joanne Lee Molinaro, she described growing up on Korean food, indulging in an American diet in college, and rediscovering her cultural cuisine as an adult. We also talked about how she embraced veganism and shared the family stories that figure prominently in her gorgeous book, The Korean Vegan Cookbook. When you talk about Korean food, I wonder if we could go back to your mom's experience, your oma, and how that figures into Mm -hmm. your journey. Oma, as I talk about in the book, her earliest story, it's not her memory because she was too young to really call it her memory, but I imagine that the story was shared with her by her parents and perhaps her older sister who was old enough to remember this. Her earliest story was of nearly dying. In fact, um, her parents, my grandparents, thought about drowning her. And the reason for that was during that time, it was the beginning of the Korean War. Everyone was trying to evacuate North Korea, which is where my mother was born at that time. And uh, they were told they needed to escape to the southern region of the peninsula through a U.S. Navy ship. Unfortunately, it took two weeks to get there from where they lived. And by that time, you know, walking for two weeks with two babies, my mother being one of them, she had no food. They had no water. And she was dying. She was in complete agony. And I don't have children, but I can't even imagine being a parent against the backdrop of war, having no food, no water, no money, no understanding of the future, and watching your infant daughter wailing because she's starving to death. But luckily, an American soldier saw that my mother was screaming and gave her a Hershey bar. And ultimately, that chocolate bar is what saved her life. This is the story of her life, is starvation, is need, this idea of food safety. People use that a lot right now, food security, food safety, food accessibility. That takes on an entirely different meaning for people like my mother and my father. It's not about, I want organic kale in my grocery store. (laughs) It's like, that's just not how they view things. And so, especially when I went plant-based and I told them that I was going to forego meat for the rest of my life, for them, it was a very difficult concept. They, they are like, what are you talking about? We worked so hard. We gave up so much so that you could have meat on your table every single day. And now you're telling me that you have the audacity to choose to give it up. And it was then that I realized that my decision, and I'm not saying this is true for everyone, but my decision to go vegan is a very privileged choice. 
It is very, very steeped in privilege. I am very lucky to be able to fill my dinner plate with the things that I want. My parents were not that lucky. But how did you embrace veganism? Like what made you make the turn? I embrace veganism for a very silly <laughs> reason, really. It's like because my <laughs> then boyfriend wanted to go vegan. And oh, I was boy. like, <laughs> okay. I really didn't want to. I was paleo at the time, which is basically the exact opposite. I believed in high fat, high animal protein, low carb. I thought that was the path to health. And I thought this vegan thing was the path to no health. <laughs> like That's what I thought. <laughs> I didn't want to join him. I didn't think that it was possible for me to be Korean and to be vegan at the same time. Like kimchi, fish sauce, <laughs> pork belly. I was like, mm, I don't think so. But it became clear pretty quickly into his exploration of the diet that A, it was not a phase. And B, if I didn't join him, it would create a wedge between us. Wow. So ultimately, I was like, fine. It's not going to kill me. I'll try it. And that's what happened. My chef brain goes, wait a minute, Korean food, like, <laughs> I mean, I don't think of vegan food being Korean. Like, it just doesn't click in my brain, you know? Yep, I, yep. I mean, I, I love Korean short ribs. Like, what are we talking about? I here? had the same problem. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting because for me, I, I think of indigenous people. I think, you know, Joanne, you know that my family's from Puerto Rico, and there has been this massive vegan movement in Puerto Rico. And you think about that food, Benil chicken. I mean, it's heavy, heavy animal protein. And yet there is this vegan movement across the island and throughout the Caribbean. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if you could speak to that a little bit. It's such a strange dichotomy to embrace your culture, right? Embrace your being Korean, embrace my being Puerto Rican, and not lose sight of the fact that I can still be in this culture and choose to lead a different way of life. Because let's face it, if you're vegan, that is a way of life. How do you maintain that integrity and stay true to those two things? Are the two things mutually exclusive? Because I try explaining this to my 85-year-old mother, and she's like, que? These people don't eat carne? What is that? And I'm like, yes. <laughs> yeah. And she thinks, you know, she's, she thinks they're crazy. At first blush, it does sound crazy. But I think if you do a little bit of digging, you'll realize that most cuisines are heavily vegetable-centric. They may be relegated to a side dish or garnish or as something that provides texture or things like that. For example, in Korean cuisine, it's like 80% vegetables, pickled vegetables, cured vegetables, sauteed vegetables. Chinese food is very similar to that. I mean, Chinese food, they know how to cook vegetables better than anybody, I feel like. And so my grandmother was a farmer. Our yard was corn, squash, perilla leaves, peppers, tomatoes. I mean, all totally 100% vegan. <laughs> and all of these sauces, soy sauce is vegan. The barbecue sauce that you're putting on those short ribs is likely vegan. I mean, it's made out of soy. It's made out of garlic. You know, we love our garlic in Korean cuisine. Kimchi, take out that fish sauce and it's vegan. And so I discovered that I had actually been flattening my own cultural cuisine by thinking that it was merely short ribs, pork belly, and fish sauce. 
there's so much more to Korean food, and I suspect many other cultural cuisines than sort of the top three things you think of on YouTube when you Google that food. You know, there's just more to it. Korean food, generally, you don't actually eat a lot of meat. That's for special occasions. It's for birthdays. It's for graduations. It's not really meant to be eaten every day. It's the kimchis and the muchims and the jjigae that are not meat centric that are eaten every day. What are the staples of the Korean pantry? Yes, gochugaru is a big one, and I say that one because I know it's a little bit more difficult to get. They don't generally sell that at Western grocery stores. You do need to get it online, or you need to get it at an Asian grocery store. Gochugaru is Korean pepper powder, so you take Korean chilies and you dry them, and then you pulverize them. So it's just like a spice. And it's very similar to paprika in both texture and perhaps a little bit in flavor because paprika is, you know, red bell pepper, right? And then, you know, gochujang um, is the sauce counterpart. So it's like a paste. It looks a lot like tomato paste and it has that sort of same rich umami, but it's spicy. It's a little bit sweet. And then it's also got that funkiness because of the fermented soybean. And then you have tinjang, which is, you know, straight up fermented soybean paste. It's a lot like miso, but it's more intense. And then you also have soy sauce and a variety of different kinds of soy sauces. Those are like the basic staples of my pantry. And many of them you absolutely can get at your Western grocery stores, but some of them you can't. And some of them, even if you can, you're not necessarily getting the best soy sauce. You're not getting the best gochujang if you get it from the Western one. Well, you talk about soy sauce being deeply misunderstood. (laughs) Uh, What should home cooks know about soy sauce and how to use it to its best effect? You know, unfortunately, I think some people have assumed that soy is bad for you. Like it's just plain a bad food for you. And and I just thousands and thousands of years of Asian cooking and their health <laughs> uh, beg to differ. And so when it's prepared the right way, when you're not using highly processed soy, which unfortunately does tend to prevail in the United States, but when you're using organic soy, non-GMO soy, when it's fermented, Mm-hmm. That's the key. When it has been fermented and gone through that sort of curing, almost purifying process, it becomes an entirely different product in my view. The other thing is in Korean cuisine and in many cultures, many Asian cultures, there's like a hundred different kinds of soy sauces. It's not just like that thing that you get that you dribble all over your sushi <laughs> in a Japanese restaurant. There's like so many different kinds. Some are used for making more sauces. Some are used for making stews. Some are used for stir fries. Some are used for injecting into your protein. There's lots of different kinds and they have different uses. The kind that I use almost all the time is the one for stews because I love to make Korean stews. So I go through those like a bottle a week. (laughs) And while we're talking about ingredients, we also got to talk about dried mushrooms a little bit because for a vegan, that's a great way to get a lot of flavor pretty quick. Absolutely. And you would know this better than most people, chef, is that there are like a bajillion different kinds of mushrooms out there too. Yeah, I mean, and each one does provide different kind and different intensity of flavor. 
for example, like dry porcini mushrooms are so great for creating a very dynamic broth. I feel like shiitake mushrooms create a sense of intense earthiness as well. You know, whether you're using them in your stock or your sauce or chopping up the reconstituted versions for your stir fry mushrooms. Again, I mean, I always have like seven bags of dried mushrooms in my pantry. I like to keep a variety of them, but my go-tos are definitely the shiitake mushrooms just because I love their earthiness and their meatiness. Can we talk about the basics? Yeah. Um, Where it all starts. Like I knew that my target audience probably had not cooked a lot of Korean food before and may not have cooked period. And so I wanted to start with what I called like, hey, like if you can master these things, you're like so already well on your way towards having a very, what I thought was a very traditional Korean meal experience, at least as I understood it from growing up. And so of course, you're going to start with rice (laughs) because like rice is the satellite of, of every meal. I mean, other than noodles, when you're having like, you know, what Korean people view as Chinese noodles, you start with rice. And then you have your panchans and you have your all the things. But I started with the rice because, you know, that fight that I talk about in the introduction to the rice recipe with my dad, how he like had a meltdown because I didn't cook the rice well. I mean, that's very understandable because in, in Korean culture, like rice is survival. Rice means you live and you don't die. So when you F up the rice, it's offensive. <laughs> <laughs> The thing that always trips people up with rice is how much water do I put in? (laughs) And for me, the way that I learned, like I distinctly remember my father showing me, okay, you pour the water in and then you put your hand in the water and then it goes to this part of your hand and that's when you know you have enough water. There's no measuring cups, like nothing like that. It's like how much of your hand is submerged in the water. That's how you do it. (laughs) That is exactly how I learned. That was Joanne Lee Molinaro. Find her online everywhere. She's at The Korean Vegan. And we've got recipes for her riff on pecan pie on our site, as well as her version of grilled steak. And don't worry, vegans, it's shiitake mushrooms. Buy the recipes on ctpublic.org recipes. And visit our show page for links to all the featured recipes from today's episode. And to listen to our extended conversations with Hawa, Gregory, and Joanne, go to ctpublic.org seasoned. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. Season is produced by Robin Doyanakin, Katie Talarski, Emily Cherish, and Catrice Claudio. To keep up with the latest on Season, follow at CT Public on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. And we're at WNPR on Twitter, or just follow the hashtag SeasonedCT on all platforms. Thanks for listening, everybody. You can catch past episodes of Seasoned on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe and never miss our conversations with award-winning authors whose cookbooks make us all better cooks. See you next week.